Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And once again, I'm in for Greg Columbus. You can find out more about me and get a free gift at my website, gregorybnaff.com. I also have a new podcast up. It's called Find Your Purpose, Live Your Passion. It's all in the show notes. Also joined, as always, by Jim Garrity, the senior political correspondent of National Review and his Twitter handle, at Jim Garrity. That is in the show notes as well. Today's Three Martini Lunch brought to you by ZipRecruiter, and we will jump right into a good one. Another pretty good jobs report, Jim. Here's the headlines. U.S. employees added 164,000 jobs in July. The wages picked up. Unemployment rate, 3.7%. That's near the lowest in half a century. So what does this mean for the near and long-term future? Sure. Um, you know, you don't want to oversay it. This was not a phenomenal off-the-charts uh, jobs report, but 164,000 is good. It also, the adjustments indicate that the May number that was a little uh, disappointing earlier this year looks like a one-month blip, nothing to really worry about. Um, I think the, the headline that comes out of this is, yeah, another, another month of job numbers in, no sign of a recession on the horizon. If you're the Trump administration, this is very good news. If you're Republicans who want to uh, have a perception that this is a president that is, that is uh, you know, running, administering or running during a time of good economic news, this is further good news. I think the wage number really jumps out because for a long time we had job creation, but the, the wage numbers are pretty stagnant. Um, you know, you do kind of wonder at some point, does, look, they, they, you know, boom times are great, but inevitably they end. And we have now had the longest expansion in history. Now, look, when you're starting after the Great Recession, <laughs> at the very depths of the Depression, you know, or the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, it's not surprising you'd have a long, slow climb out of there. And for a long time, this felt like a jobless recovery. But now it's been pretty darn good. The stock market had that nice boom when uh, when Trump won. And so far, here we are. It's you know starting to get to summer 2019. Nothing's gone wrong yet. There's been some concern about the tariffs and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, so far, so good. And, uh, you know, for those of us who had worried that the tariffs were going to really cause some economic headaches, that has not happened. Uh, long term, you know, who knows? Um, there's always that nagging fear that the rest of the economy, the rest of the country, the rest of the world's economy slowed down and that affects us. Um, probably one of the most more interesting measuring sticks just to, to work, throw out here. So the U6, which is the unemployment rate that counts everybody, uh, not just those who are, uh, can't find a job, but also the folks who are doing part-time but are looking for full-time, uh, people who want a job who aren't looking, you know, every possible, that's down to 7% and that's the lowest since 2000. So, you know, all in all, this is pretty good and, uh, you know, smooth, smooth seas up ahead um, you know, what things are going to be like in November 2020 is still too soon to set, still too soon to tell. But, uh, you know, my attitude, Greg, is I take it. Absolutely take it. And just to be clear, Jim, I want to make sure for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Kamala Harris to understand, we're still measuring unemployment by somebody who's looking for work and unable to find it, not by how many jobs they have, right? Yeah, you know, that's <laughs> that idea of unemployment this high because everyone's working two jobs, which, you know. Right. I mean, one, that's not unemployment. Two, right. um, you know, if they're able, if they're able to find two jobs, that's a particular, that's probably a good sign. Uh, although there was some argument back during the Obama days, particularly after Obamacare kicked in, that you had, you know, once you created that new cost on employers of more than 40 hours a week, 
lo and behold, lots of employers were bringing their workers down to 30 hours a week. So yeah, also. yeah, so shocking. That circumstance was causing people to work two jobs when they didn't necessarily want to. But, uh, you know, all in all, that is not the measuring stick. It's never been the measuring stick. And I think it now indicates that there are a lot of Democrats who want to promote policies that might sound better in a recession. And much to their frustration, we don't have a recession. Yeah, that's the tough thing about politics, isn't it? Because the party out of power has to really secretly want a recession to hit before the election, which is not good for the nation, but it would be good for their party. We'll see how that goes. All right, that is martini number one. And today, the three martini lunch is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Yeah, funny we're talking about jobs because hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done, and that's ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply for your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of every five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate with, through the site within the first day. And that right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com martini. That's ZipRecruiter.com martini. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, and now we're moving into a two for two crazy martinis in one day, but one might be crazy like a fox. So we start with David Brooks. He's got a piece in the New York Times, and it's about Marianne Williamson. Now, she's that self-help guru, speaker, author, existential, Far Eastern type, new age. I don't even know how to describe it all, Jim, but I think people know who I'm talking about now. She's the one that says the way you beat Trump is with love. And she's very interesting during the debates. And David Brooks says, quote, from the, this is the headline, um, Marion Williamson knows how to beat Trump. We need an uprising of decency. What do you say, Jim? Yeah, this is kind of one of those uh, two waves of flavor in the martini, uh, crazy martinis. Because the first crazy one is you pick up the New York Times. Uh, and the headline on that op-ed column from David Brooks, one of the more right of center, I don't know if people would necessarily characterize him as a full spectrum conservative anymore. Yeah. But the, one of the right of center columnist says, Marianne Williamson knows how to beat Trump. And the second crazy part is you read it and there's a certain uh, compelling logic to it. There's a certain, uh, it, it actually kind of makes a little more sense where he says, you know, look, it is no accident that the democratic candidate with the best grasp of this election is the one running a spiritual crusade, not an economic redistribution effort. Many of your ideas are wackadoodle, Again, this is semi-endorsement now. <laughs> this right. is the phrase, yeah. But, but Marianne Williamson is right about this. And he goes on to the quote, this is part of the dark underbelly of American society, the racism, the bigotry, and the entire conversation that we're having here tonight. If you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. Now, whether or not you believe Trump himself is... <clears throat> bringing up dark psychic forces. You know, you and I talked earlier in the week when you think about hatred, bigotry, extremism, the sort of thing that makes somebody shoot up a synagogue or, or you know, the guy who tried to throw firebombs at the uh, ICE facility up in Tacona, 
Tacoma, you know, that, that is dark psychic force, right? That is that kind of rage, you know? And she goes on to say, we've never dealt with a figure like this in American history before. This man, our president, is not just a politician, he's a phenomenon. I think Trump would agree with that. An insider political game will not be able to defeat it. The only thing that will defeat him is if we have a phenomenon of equal force, and that phenomenon is a moral uprising of the American people. Now, love Trump, hate Trump. I think the description that he is a phenomenon and outside the traditional realm of politics is accurate. And, you know, that he tapped into some deep-rooted emotions uh, as during his, his rise in 2016, right? There's this, you know, now his, his emotions he was tapping into were generally anger, right? Frustration. Um, in today's Morning Jolt, I talk about all the different populist promises that Barack Obama had made in 2008 as, a, as, a, as the Democratic candidate. He had said he was going to, you know, he didn't use the term drain the swamp, but he said we weren't going to have lobbyists working in the White House and in government. And, <laughs> and then he said, eh, okay, yes, we will. Uh, he too said that he was not happy with NAFTA and that he wanted to renegotiate it to, you know, stand up for working. We need, a, we need trade agreements that work for Main Street, not just Wall Street. NAFTA remained the same during the, the Obama presidency. Uh, I mean, Obama bashed the bailouts of Wall Street and the banks all the time. Easy to forget that Obama voted <laughs> for that bailout. You know, so there was kind of this, if you were a populist, Obama was, you know, was speaking a good game when he was, you know, then senator and running for office. Then he got into office and he wasn't as good as he hoped. Uh, and all that built up into anger and frustration in this sense that the game was rigged in the sense that the rich and powerful uh, could do whatever they wanted, never were held accountable and stuff. And Trump tapped into that. Yeah. I know a bunch of the Democrats are trying to tap into that same uh, sentiment right now. Um, I don't know if Marianne Williamson uh, will get above more than the couple percentage points she's got so far. I don't think she's going to be the Democratic nominee. But I do think when she says, you know, that this these elections uh, are, they, they're, I, I lament that elections revolve around emotions and not say math. Um, but uh, in the end, I, I do think this is what moves voters. And I do think this is the sort of thing where if you, you know, if you want to make the argument against Trump, uh, you do have to make that emotion. We, you know, that not just we're better than this and lecture people, but talk about the good parts. Talk about what you see as the, you know, he said he wants to make America great again. Maybe you believe that America was always great and, you know, he, Trump is off his rocker when he says this. But you have to paint that picture of that better America, right? You, you've got to basically give somebody, you know, if you don't like hope and change, you know, something optimistic, right? Something that says, here's this better future within reach and here's what we have to do to get there. Um, Absolutely. And they're not doing that. I, I mean, yeah. if you look at the Democrats are in the debate, it's like they're saying that America was never great. And in fact, there are Democrats that have come out and said that about make America great again. And of course, they also try to make it seem like Trump's talking about when we were we when we had slavery or when we had Jim Crow. And, and obviously, that's not what he's trying to refer to. But I, what I think is interesting about that, Jim, is Marion Williamson saying, you know, it's not policy that's going to change the, these problems with America culturally. Well, that's something that conservatives, and in particular Christian conservatives, has said for decades mm -hmm. that, look, the problem with the family, the problem with crime, the problem with poverty is not something that government programs are going to fix. It's going to take a spiritual awakening. It's going to take, you know, caring about each other, and it's going to take non, you know, um, non-governmental organizations like Salvation Army and other places and people tithing. And when when people say that on the right, we're called all kinds of horrible names. Marion Williamson says it, and all of a sudden David Brooks loves her. But I do like that part. What I'm tired of, Jim, and you alluded to it, look, Trump, he, he's basically saying if only Donald Trump were not president, we could talk about policy. But no, we have to talk about the moral atmosphere in which we raise our children, all because of Trump. 
Now, look, I'm tired of Democrats and liberals and celebrities and members of the media, and I'm repeating myself, all saying Trump is why we have this horrible moral atmosphere. Now, I grant you, and I think we'll agree, Jim, what Trump says and what he tweets and the way he says these things, he says it in ways I wouldn't. But so do the Democrats, and they've been doing it for decades. I mean, anybody who disagrees with them, you're racist, you're sexist, you're xenophobic, you're homophobic, you're Islamophobic, you're a monster. That's how we got Trump, right? I mean, Obama was an expert at that. If you disagreed with them, it wasn't because you had a different idea. It was because you were racist or something else. And so Trump fought back on that because people were tired of Republicans who would not fight back. Remember, Biden said to a, a largely black audience that Romney was going to, quote, put y'all back in chains. I mean, remember – the Dems ran ads showing Paul Ryan literally throwing a grandmother in a wheelchair over a cliff. If you go back to the 1998 campaign, I looked this up today. There were ads aimed at black people that said, when you don't vote, you let another church explode. Vote, you allow another cross to burn. Vote smart, vote Democrat for Congress, and on and on. And I think the average person, Jim, was just tired of being called every name in the book because they actually love the country. They love the founding documents. They want our laws enforced. They wanted taxes to be lower and to be left alone. And, and, and they were tired of nice guys like Romney and McCain losing. Yeah, probably like the distilled antithesis of what Marianne Williamson is talking about uh, was at the same debate night when uh, Kirsten Gillibrand said that she had the ability to go around to tell white suburban women how they were benefiting from white privilege. Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a part of me I'm, I'm sure the Trump administration would be like oh please please nominate her please do that <laughs> you know? yeah um, absolutely that is exactly the kind of con first of all tone deaf condescending by the way Kirsten Gillibrand comes from a very you know well off and politically connected family okay uh, you know her grandmother was active in basically her grandmother was the Albany political machine for a lot of years and her dad was a lobbyist in, in Albany like you know let's not kid her you know, so she's you know, out of all the people on that stage maybe one of the worst people to go around to you know white steel mill workers and say, hey, you guys don't know how good you have it because of the color of your skin. The last thing I say on that, Jim, is it sounds great to be, you know, elevate the dialogue, but unilaterally disarming allows the other guy to knock your teeth out because negative campaigning and negative advertising works. As much as we complain about it, we all know it works. Yeah. And again, you know, this was the week that everybody, almost everybody in the Democratic field defended Al Sharpton. Yeah. No accountability for I me. Mean, like, if you, you know, a couple of times this week, I've mentioned you grew up outside New York City in the 1980s. You know, Al Sharpton's the guy who went into a tense situation and figured out how, out how to make it worse. And there's yeah. never been any accountability for Tawana Brawley. There's never been accountability for Freddie's fashion mark. All these things that, you know, um, and again, that unwillingness to, you know, when people say we need an honest conversation about race, that's part of that conversation, but uh, you know, a lot of Democrats don't want to have that part. Amen. Maybe, absolutely. Maybe they'll find another candidate. Who knows? All right, we're on to Martini number three. Another crazy one. We're bringing in Michael Moore. Michael Moore has someone he wants to run. We've got the audio. I think, in my humble opinion, four of these candidates running could beat uh, Trump: Bernie, Biden. Kamala Harris and, uh, and Elizabeth Warren. They could beat him, but Hillary beat him. It, it's not enough just to beat Trump. The only way to remove Trump is to crush Trump. Who's the street fighter? And frankly, I think if the election were held today, there is one person that would crush Trump, and she hasn't announced yet. And her last name rhymes with Obama. In fact, <laughs> it is Obama. Michelle Obama. 
everybody watching this right now knows she is a beloved American, and she would go in there and she would beat him. She would beat him in the debates. He wouldn't be able to bully her. He wouldn't be able to nickname her. And, and, and she is beloved. Okay, before we get into the talk about Michelle Obama, I just have one point I wanted to make, Jim. He said Hillary beat Trump. No, Hillary lost because the way you win is you win 270 electoral college votes. Trump did. She didn't. Winning the popular vote doesn't matter because that's not how our election works. And if it did, people would campaign differently to get popular votes. So I just wanted to throw mm -hmm. that out there. And then, Jim, what do you say about Michelle? Sure. First of all, I mean, let's observe that, you know, uh, winning the Electoral College gets you the presidency. Winning the popular vote gets you nothing, not even like a dollar off at Starbucks. Exactly. Think about it. I think Howard Schultz should organize something like that. If you win the popular vote for the president, you should at least get a buck off. You'll get a coupon or something. <laughs> uh, second point, it's, you know, let's, let's face it, Michael Moore. Obama does not rhyme with Obama. Obama is Obama. <laughs> um, but so I, I'm curious about why MSNBC, like this is the sort of appearance where if you're an MSNBC producer, I wonder why you've invited Michael Moore on. And I wonder if you want to invite Michael Moore on again, because in the end of it, basically, he's basically saying, but wouldn't it be nice if Michelle Obama ran for president and we could all unite around her? Yeah, I guess that would be nice. I, I have seen no indication that she has any interest in this. In fact, when the you know, time she does interviews and gets asked about this, she sounds like it's the absolute last thing she wants to do. Um, for whatever disagreements we have on policy, Michelle Obama always struck me as a woman who seemed to have a good head on her shoulders. And she, I got the feeling she didn't really enjoy um, the all the scrutiny and all the things that, you know, all the different ways your life gets disrupted when you become uh, first lady of the United States. You want your kids to have a normal childhood as much as you can. You know, there's a lot of stress that comes with that position. In, you know, and, and I, so, so first of all, she seems to have zero interest in it whatsoever. Secondly, I think it's probably a bad sign for Democrats that Michael Moore, and he does say that there are four candidates he thinks are fine, but he's, you know, we're, we're as I said, we're seven months into this Democratic primary race. Uh, Eric Swalwell has already come and gone. I know it's easy to forget because uh, he wasn't, he didn't make that much of an impression when he was here. But, you know, we're fairly well into this. This, you know, you want to say to Democrats, this is what you get. To paraphrase Rick Pitino, Larry Bird is not walking through that door. Uh, there is no better candidate about to walk through the door to save you from the frustrations you have in this primary. This is what's at the buffet table, and it's the biggest, you know, biggest selection of candidates any party's ever had. If you can't find something you like in this list, you're probably in deep, deep trouble. And second, like you know, one of the reasons everybody likes Michelle Obama, or, or that she has extremely high approval ratings both within the Democratic Party and amongst probably everybody except uh, outside of committed Republicans, is that she wasn't a terribly partisan figure. Michelle Obama's never introduced a piece of legislation. She's never vetoed a bill. She's never, had, you know, like, because she's outside of the political realm, people who aren't that into politics, you know, remember her telling people to drink more water and get kids. You know, people didn't necessarily like the, the healthy meals deal in schools, you know, but, but it's kind of this like sad wish list. And this is why I made this kind of the crazy martini that Michael Moore, you know, with more options than ever before, is sitting around dreaming of Michelle Obama riding in on a white horse to rescue the party. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. And I, I even wonder how would that go, even though she is beloved, because the Democrats right now in the last debate attacked a bunch of Obama policies, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. And uh, you hit on something I just wanted to, to highlight. No time in history, recent history, 
would more people on the Democratic side want to run because everybody thinks they can beat Trump, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so everybody's out there. I mean, we had over 20 people and none of them are good enough. Why? And I wonder, you know, part of what's going on, I think, who wants to be president? I mean, for real, regular people, who, 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 if you're not a narcissist, why would you want that job? And it's very hard for me to think of somebody who I would want to be president actually wanting that job. Yeah, you know, in a way, the, the, you know, the, the first qualification for the job is to be, have a sense of trepidation about the job. Right. <laughs> a recognition of the awesome responsibilities that you have. And something that you know, doesn't come up often enough in these primary debates, and everybody can have these great plans. Okay, you know, the question you'd like to put to all these guys is, are you ready to write letters to the families of soldiers who are slain because of an operation you, you approved? Because that happens to just about every president. You know, no, no president is going to go out and say, I promise to never commit any U.S. forces to any potential combat or dangerous situations ever. You know, at some point, it's going to happen. And you're going to have to write those letters. And you're going to have to console those families. And you're going to, you know, and you're going to know that those good men died because of a decision you made. You didn't intend it. You thought the risk was acceptable. You knew there was a risk. You thought the objective was worthwhile. You know, the very best situation, people can die. And that's a big responsibility to live with. And if that, that, if that intimidates you, good, <laughs> because it yeah. should. That is a, you know, that's, you know, the fact, if, if it intimidates you, it means you take it seriously. And there's this nagging feeling that a good chunk of the people on, on both this, you know, debate stage for the Democrats and the last one for the Republicans, that, you know, their, their primary preparation for the job was to look in the mirror and say, Yes, Mr. President. You're looking good today, Mr. President. You're, you know, that was a great idea, Mr. President. You know, kind of that old joke that 100 senators look in the mirror and they see a potential president staring back at them. Um, I, I think you're, you're right on that. I think that, that there is, you know, inevitably, you want to run, normal, healthy, well-adjusted people are understandably reluctant to run for office. It's not fun. Yep. You know, like me in the media will sniff out every, if you ever had, uh, you ever went bankrupt? Yeah, that's going to be an issue. Uh, ever had a messy divorce? Yeah, that's going to be an issue um ever you know parking tickets remember uh remember the speeding tickets of uh, marco rubio's wife remember his allegedly luxurious yacht uh you know the, the rubio crime spree in which he you know drank red wine with fish and wore white slacks after labor day you know um that's that's part of the process now on the one hand i kind of feel like look you want the most powerful job in the world you're going to have to be able to live with the scrutiny that's that's part of the that's part of this process we don't want somebody coming in and just showing up and hoping for the best on the other hand, the level of scrutiny that the modern media has in an era where everybody wants clicks, everybody wants, you know, uh, outrage clicks if necessary, uh, and everybody wants to be Woodward and Bernstein, you know, to have some pelt on their wall. Everybody wants to write the article that ends a, a, a campaign, particularly a Republican campaign. Um, you end up in a situation where normal, well-adjusted people say, you know, I care about my country, but... Uh, I'll find some other way to do something. I, I don't want to deal with the, the process of that. And you know, I remember governing is tough for the best of circumstances. So, Absolutely. but anyway, yeah, that's yeah. I don't know about you, Greg, but more and more, I feel like there's a, a gap between the way I see the job of the presidency and the, the way a good chunk of the electorate sees the job of the presidency. No doubt about it. And definitely a lot different than it was designed in the founding. Um, mm. So we'll see where it leads. Uh, the Three Martini Lunch. My name is Greg Knapp in for Greg Columbus, joined by Jim Garrity, Senior Political Correspondent of National Review. His Twitter handle is at jimgarrity.com. My uh, website, gregorybnapp.com. It's all in the show notes. Thanks for being with us, and we hope you're not too tipsy. <laughs>